of you may be here for the first time or may not have been here in a while, we've been working through the New Testament in this class, and we've spent, absent last week when I was gone, we've spent the last four of my classes, this is the fourth one, trying to answer this question. John selects seven signs or miracles for his gospel. Why did he pick those seven? What is it about those seven that made them useful in the overall goal and scheme of his gospel? To do that, it took us three classes to unpack the verses where he basically tells us why he did it. Today, we get to understand and and look at together how those fit why he did it. But we're not starting there. Uh, I had a wonderful chance this week to speak to three groups of students at Northland Christian School. And it's a school not far from here where a lot of kids go. Uh, I've got uh, nieces and nephews and daughters that are there. And I'm sure you've got friends and family that are there. Pastor Fleming's got a daughter there. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful place. And I had been asked to come speak to the, the middle schoolers, high schoolers, and senior high schoolers on the Jewish roots of our Christian faith. I thought this would be great if I was speaking to adults. I don't do well speaking to kids, especially kids at school that don't want to be there because they don't want to listen to this. So I didn't know what to do. So I took 60 bagels and I told the kids, I'm going to call out questions. And if you answer the question, if you get it right, you get a bagel. If you get it wrong, but it was a pretty good guess, you get half a bagel. If you just seem to be goofing off, you don't get a bagel. And so the kids actually paid some attention. And I was amazed because what I did is is I I went, some of the kids that are there actually come to this class. And so I knew that they were tuned into the Gospel of John right now. So I thought I'll use the Gospel of John, which is a wonderful gospel for examining our Jewish roots. So I went to the story about Jesus, where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and gets in trouble. And in the dialogue Jesus is having with the Jews, Jesus makes the mistake in the Jews' minds of making some claim to Abraham. The Jews say, are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus says the following, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. John eight fifty six. So setting it up that way, I asked the students, where did that happen? Where in the Old Testament does Abraham, do we learn, Abraham saw the day of Jesus, rejoiced, and was glad? And some kid said, uh, from heaven. Uh, that doesn't even get a bagel. Some kid said, uh, from uh, uh, the Bible. I said... That really doesn't get a bagel. Think that one through. Then some kid said, how about that lamb in the bush thing? I said, that gets a bagel. Threw him a bagel. And I think a lot of us in here know that. You may know it to different levels and different depths, depending upon how much you've studied it. But the gospel of John 
rebuilds the Isaac sacrifice story in a profound way. I don't know how many of you are fathers who have a son. I think it would be the same if you had a daughter. I have four girls and a boy. And if God told me to sacrifice any of my children, I would have the heaviest heart I could ever bear. I don't know how a parent loses a child at all, much less at the hand of the parent by choice. It's, it's not something I can fathom. But we unpacked the story, and I put the scriptures up on the overhead, and I had them look at it, and I said, okay, I'm going to put some things in red, and I want you to tell me where this event that happened in Genesis 22 with Abraham that's in red, you tell me how we find that event in the day of Jesus. How could Abraham, living this, see the day of Jesus? And so we started out, God says, sacrifice your son. Oh, they nailed that. Jesus is the son of God. I said, okay. But then the passage in Genesis doesn't say just your son. After it says, God says to Abraham, 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 Abraham says, here I am. He says, sacrifice in the Hebrew, by the way, has the word please in there. Nah, Monson is in the story. Please sacrifice your son. It's not a command. Directly. And so Abraham says, uh, God says, sacrifice your son. Your only son. And those words are in there. Which is kind of peculiar because Abraham has another son, Ishmael. But not his only son, Isaac, the son of promise. And so the kids got that. Only son, son of promise. Jesus was the promised one. They nailed that one. I said, whom you love. Kids are sitting there. I said, now someone give me a Bible verse out of the gospel of John that's taken and using these exact words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I said, that's right. And, and, and God says, and I want you to go do this on a mountain that I'll point out to you. Or a hilltop. In the land of Moriah. I said, where's Moriah? They didn't know. Nobody had a clue. I said, okay, well, write the story yourself. If you're God and you want to do something as a preview of the sacrifice of Jesus, where will you have it happen? They said, Jerusalem. I said, that's the land of Moriah. So in the land of Moriah, the area of Moriah, on a mountain that God would show, Abraham sleeps on it, according to the story in Genesis. It's the next morning where he decides, I'm going to do it. Or somewhere through the night. And at that point in time, in a real sense, Abraham made the sacrifice. He made the mental decision. He made the emotional decision. He would do it. So he journeys. God didn't say do it in your backyard. He said, so he journeys. So where does Abraham go to do this? The land of Moriah. How long did it take him to get there after he made the sacrifice? Three days. They're quick. Three days. I said, yes. So the sacrifice he decided in his heart, his son was returned to him three days later. What else happened? Well, they get to the site, and what does Abraham do? 
He puts the wood on Isaac and makes Isaac carry his own wood to his own sacrifice. They got it. Jesus carried his wooden cross. On the way up there, what does it say? Isaac says, hey, we got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. They could have sacrificed a bull, they could have sacrificed a dove, they could have sacrificed a pigeon, they could have sacrificed a ram. But Isaac says, where's the lamb? So they got that. They get up there, Abraham binds Isaac. And the Hebrew word for bind is an unusual word. We should think of it as a rodeo term. It means to tie the hands and the feet. Like you'd do a calf at the calf roping. Who got bound by hands and feet? Jesus. They got that. Abraham lifts up the knife. As the spear was lifted to Jesus. But it's at that point that the story takes a divergence. Because while Abraham lifts up the knife, God stops him. God stops him. Abraham then sees a ram. A sacrifice put in place by God. And the the ram is sacrificed instead. Now Abraham leaves and he names that place. He names it Yahweh will provide. I said, this is where Abraham sees my day. He saw it and was glad. I can't think of a father ever being more rejoicing than Abraham would have that day. And Abraham, whether he realized fully what he was seeing or not, even prophetically was proclaiming, God will provide, Yahweh will provide. That is that sacrifice. Now, we know it's even more directly tied in when we're reading John than those high school students would have, because the language of John, there's a Greek word for see, orao, and it's the Greek word that the Jewish translators used when they were translating the Old Testament into Greek, like we've talked about many times in this class, the Septuagint, that uh, uh, translation that took place over a number of decades, starting around 200 or so B.C., But if you went back and you looked at where that Greek word is used in the Old Testament, you'll see that it's used in a number of places in this story to translate the Hebrew word, ra'ah. Here's what you have. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Remember, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. When he lifted up his eyes and saw that word saw that is there. Let's get it back up there. That is is saw. See, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The Hebrew word provide sounds good. But it's really the same Hebrew word as see. And it's translated with that same Greek word for see. We could translate it just as well. God will see to it for himself, the lamb. So when Jesus says Abraham saw it, 
Abraham, that's what the Hebrew says. Abraham said, God will see to it. And Abraham saw it himself. And then finally it ends with, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Same thing. Saw. Same word. Abraham looked and behold, the ram caught in the thicket. And then when Abraham leaves and he names the place, what does he name it? The Lord will provide. As it said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Both times you read the word provide, it's the word see. So you've got Abraham not only rejoiced that he would see my day and not only made him so happy, and he would, but he was glad in it because he saw it. He saw God doing that kind of work. Now, is that not just magnificent to unfold? And that is so compact and magnificent that it almost makes you think that Genesis must have been written after the death of Christ. And there are probably some in academia who would argue that if we did not have copies. At least we've got a Dead Sea Scroll now that predates it. And we've got translations and others. I mean, nobody can fuss that point. So someone might say, oh, but the Gospels must have been written after Genesis and written deliberately to fuel such a parallel. Now, as a lawyer, I'm telling you, I don't buy that either. Nobody concocts a story to fit a parallel that clearly without ringing the bell and shining the spotlight on it to draw everyone's attention to it. But if you're not reading carefully the Gospel of John, you don't even get this. This is not, oh, we made up this whole story about Jesus so that it would fit the Isaac account. Not at all. This is one of many... uh, uh, threads in the tapestry of Scripture that weave together in such a beautiful way to to form a beautiful picture that makes no sense any other way. And I love this because this same care that John puts in just that verse is laced throughout the Gospel of John. We've seen it in what we've studied thus far, but we'll see it again today as we finally finish answering this question, why did John select Those seven miracles to prove his point. Why out of all the miracles God did, did John pick those seven? And these are the verses we've unpacked over the last few weeks. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. I had lots to choose from, John's saying. Oh, there were a lot I could have picked. But... These are written, these seven I selected so that, a a Hena purpose clause, Greek guys, in order that you may believe that Jesus is Messiah. That you may believe that Jesus is Son of God. Now remember, as we went through this class, Messiah to us in the 21st century, we just, oh yes, Jesus is Christ. Of course he is. At the time John's writing this, even among Jewish Christians, there was doubt about exactly how the Messiah picture unfolds. Were there two Messiahs? Were there three Messiahs? Was it a prophet, a priest, a king? And we've got lots of evidence to that effect. And John wants to make it clear, the Messiah is Jesus. There's one. Don't wait for another. 
The Son of God is Jesus. There's one. Don't wait for another. And if do this, that by believing you may have life in his name. By the way, Alistair McGrath this morning talked about the two Greek words for life, bios and zoe. This is zoe life. It's the vitality of life. But it's also the, 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 the existence of life in his name. So that's what he says. So we put it up there. These miracles, we're going to look at the seven miracles with this idea. We want to see if they help us believe that Jesus truly is Messiah. Truly is Son of God. Truly, so that we know whether we truly might have life in His name. Is this the reality of the world or is it fiction? And that's what John has. So, you ready for the seven miracles? You know most of these. We've been touching on them here and there as we've been going through the Gospel of John. We'll spend a little more time on some than others. Miracle number one. This is a Baptist church. I tried to change it where Jesus turns wine into water. But I couldn't get that out of the passage. So, we just had to stick with it the way it happened. Jesus turns water into wine. The story is found in John 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's go to the Elmo and let's look at a little bit of this together. John 2, verses 1 through 11. There we go. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana is about nine miles north of Nazareth. Nearby. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Maybe a family member, maybe a family friend, maybe just a close neighbor. But it was a close wedding with friends. Disciples. When the wine ran out, now these weddings could last a week. And a wedding in Hebrew culture was a very special, significant event. It had great uh, uh, significance because the, if, if you unpack the covenant God makes with his, his people on Sinai, you unpack that covenant and much of it reads like a Jewish wedding ceremony. God wed his people then. And you see in the prophet Hosea very clearly God speaking of, of the people of Israel as his bride. So weddings were significant because it's a joining together of man and woman in a way that was reminiscent of God and his people. And of course, for the church, it gains more significance as we are understood to be the bride of Christ. So we have multiple layers of that John's readership will appreciate by John selecting this wedding miracle. It's a very holy, special time. The wine ran out and the mother of Jesus said to him, they don't have any wine. So the mom, Mary, may have been taking some type of a role within the wedding. Uh, that's Someone said she was a busybody. And then that's not fair to say. She may have been, I don't know. But uh, who knows? I mean, she was human. But uh, the, the story's not saying she was a busybody. She's just helping. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And the scholars debate, well, he sounds kind of harsh to his mother. 
calling her woman instead of mom. Maybe this is where he's starting to set up his ministry. We don't know. He may have just been teasing her. If you watch Duck Dynasty, they call their mom Miss Kay. (laughs) My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Why does John tell us that? Why doesn't he just proceed through the mirror? Because it's very important. There were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holds 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water, fill them to the brim. He said, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. They took it. The master tasted the water, now become wine. And didn't know where it came from. The master calls the bridegroom and says, hey, everybody serves the good wine first. And when people have dulled their taste buds a little bit, then they pull out the cheap stuff. But you kept the good stuff till the end. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Here we've got it. The first miracle. How does this miracle help us believe Jesus is Messiah, Son of God, so we may have life in his name? Well, through John Monson and Jim Hoffmeyer, I got the same picture. This is in the Israel Museum. It gives you two stone Jars that were for holding water, for purification. And we've already talked about one way that that these jars filled with water would help. And that's just the whole wedding process. We've got a wedding here, God and his people. And Jesus is performing a miracle to save the day. to, to, To make it right. Between God and his people. To show honor and blessing to that wedding ceremony. But we're missing it if we don't look at the stone jugs for purification. Because John makes it a point to tell us about them. And under the Old Testament, for the Jews to be ceremonially clean, they had to wash with that water. That does not mean they went over, by the way, and stuck their hands in it and washed and then left. That water would not have been ceremonially clean after that. They would take it out of the jug and wash their hands or what they needed to wash. But that's what that water was there for. And that's the best that the Old Testament had. But at the wedding ceremony, the marriage of God and His people... A symbol that would be Christ and His bride, the church. Waters of purification under the Old Testament law would never be adequate to purify His people. So Jesus turns that water into wine. Which I'm sure John's readership immediately associates with the Eucharist. The blood of Christ. And so as his readers are reading this, they're seeing in this miracle, just as much as you can see in Isaac, you're seeing Jesus uh, 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 previewing 
events of great significance and importance. A message to his bride from the beginning. Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. We have life in his name. Miracle number two. So, Jesus uh, uh, goes about lots of other things happening in John's story. But miracle number two, there is uh, uh, the great physician medical services, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, We find this story in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. And, and here's what happens. There's an official who is, uh, uh, lives in Capernaum. It's 20 miles from where Jesus is. The official goes to see Jesus and says, My son is sick. Would you come heal my son? He's sick to the point of death. Please. And continues to beseech Jesus. Asks him over and over and over. And Jesus says, I don't, I don't need to go. Just go home. Your son's well. 20 miles. The man goes home. He doesn't get home till the next day. And he says, he meets his servants. Servants say, hey, your son's fine. As of yesterday, he's fine. The man says, what time yesterday? One in the afternoon. The man says, that's exactly when Jesus said it. By the way, some of you in here, like James Hammond, yes, you're here. This is the kind of thing that you would be bothered by. If the dad's really that concerned about his son, why at one in the afternoon when he gets the word from Jesus, does he lollygag and not get home 20 miles away until the next day? And that's a fair question to be bothered about. Even D.A. Carson spends like two pages in his commentary on that. Well, some think he's using Roman time, but there's no evidence of Roman time. Some say this is an indication that the the father had such faith that he went ahead and did some business on the way home. Some say maybe something accidentally just cropped up. We don't really know. I just wash all of that aside and say, come on, guys, there were Jews. The next day started at sundown, 6 p.m. That just means he went straight home. Any dad would. But when he got home at 6.30 at night, or whatever time he got home, if it happened at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, that's yesterday in a Jewish calendar. Okay? So, what happens after this? That man himself believed, and all of his household. So you may believe Jesus is Messiah, Son of God, and you may have life in His name. Now, John wants us to keep count of these miracles. John gave us at Cana, that was the first miracle. And he gives us here, whoops, go back. That was his, this was now the second sign. Not the second miracle Jesus did. Because in John 2, after the marriage at Cana, John talks about Jesus doing lots of other miracles between then and now. That's the second sign John wrote. He's telling you to count these. He wants you to see that there are seven. Now, lots of guys, by the way, sit there. By guys, I mean that guys and gals. Lots of people sit there and try to analyze these seven and map them out. Okay, how do they align with the seven days of creation? Okay, how do they align with what's the progression? What's the train of thought? I mapped through all of that. I really wanted to give you something incredibly profound, and I can't find it. I'm sorry. I've read all that stuff. I don't buy any of it. it none of it sold me. I may be wrong, but I don't have any of that to offer. I will tell you last night, 
Alistair McGrath asked me when he found out what I was teaching, he said, do you think there's a pattern or anything, you know, he gave me that Oxford Dawn Inquisition, anything about these seven miracles? And I thought, oh, I wish I had a brilliant answer to give him. And I said, no, I looked, I can't find it. I don't buy it. I read a lot of different ideas. I just don't buy any of them. He said, good, because I don't either. So, hey, I may be wrong, but I'm wrong with that guy, okay? So, how does this miracle fit the bill? It fits it like a hand in a glove. Let's go to miracle number three. Miracle number three is in, found in John 15, 1 through 15. It's at the pool of Bethesda. And at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus goes there. And Jesus sees a man. Let's, let's put this on the Elmo. If we're doing okay time-wise, if we gotta skip a couple miracles, you can read them at home. Here we go. After this, there's a feast of the Jews. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. By the way, lots of these miracles done around the feast in John because John's got a theme of feasts. And you look at all of the different celebrations in John and it's really cool. Only New Testament writer to put Hanukkah in there. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, whoops, lying there and knew he'd already been there a long time, Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The man answered and said, please, Lord Jesus, heal me. Oh, no, he didn't. I'm sorry. He said, oh, if anyone pick me up, put me in the pool when the water stirred. While I'm going down the steps, someone cuts in front of me. Because he believed this superstition that an angel would, he thought the world was magic. And an angel would stir up the waters. And the first one that gets in, gets in. Well, we know enough. And the Bible teaches it's not a magic world. It's a creation of order. It's a creation where it takes the divine to step in and change things. And he doesn't do it routinely by making some location the healing zone. And so, so, so he's sitting there and while he's gazing down the whole time, he never bothers to look up at the Jesus who can heal him. His whole perspective is, well, I've been looking down, I've been looking at the water every time it stirs. I can't get down there in time. Jesus says, take up your mat, go and be healed. The man does so. Doesn't stop to say, who are you? Doesn't stop to say, thank you. Doesn't stop to say, can I follow you and be one of your disciples? He just immediately picks up his mat and leaves. The Pharisees see this, or the, the, the Jewish leaders do. The Jewish leaders see this, say, hey, it's against the law to carry your mat on a Sunday. What are you doing? And this is the guy that throws Jesus under the bus. We talked about before. He says, hey, 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 the guy who healed me told me to do this. And they say, well, who was that? I don't even know who he was. Which tells you he didn't even bother to stick around to get to know the man that healed him. And so he goes on. Jesus seeks the man out. The man doesn't seek Jesus out at the festival. And when the man figures out, oh, you're Jesus, you're the guy, the man goes and rats Jesus out. He goes and finds the, the Jewish leaders again and say, hey, I got his name if you still want that guy. It's Jesus. And I've told you before, this story cuts me a little bit harshly because I see myself in that man so much. 
So the story's got two prongs. Number one, Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. Jesus is not just someone bound by the laws and culture and traditions handed down. But it's also that Jesus is greater than our frailties of faith and our ingratitudes and our numbness to who He is. And He will come bless and rescue us even when we're looking down. What's the bad poem that Alistair had to memorize in high school? Two men look through the same bars. One sees mud, the other sees stars. This guy's a mud looker. I'm looking down at the pool and Jesus is pulling him up to the stars. Great, great parable. I mean, a miracle fits John's paradigm. Now, four and five we put together because John puts them together. And it's a wonderful way John does it. John Monson just took this picture recently, I think. That's the Sea of Galilee and the, the hills that surround it. And that's where this takes place. Jesus feeds 5,000. That's the only miracle all four Gospels record. Jesus feeds 5,000. Afterwards, his disciples set out in a boat, and Jesus evidently is seen to be someone who's going to walk to the other side of the lake overnight. Well, the winds are blowing, and the disciples are rowing really hard against the wind. And Jesus walks on water. And gets in the boat. After that, the crowd refines Jesus because he feeds for free. It's kind of like my bagels with that school. Those kids, they just stayed there longer. When I got ran out of bagels, they were kind of like, okay, we got no more use for you. <laughs> if Jesus had been there, those bagels, we'd have been throwing them all day. Never would have run out. All right. So they go, they want to make Jesus king by force. Why not? That's the kind of guy I'd follow into battle. He can make food when there is none. If you get sick, he'll heal you. And he doesn't even have to be there. You'd be 20 miles away. He can heal you. And we'll find out later, if you get killed in battle, he'll just resurrect you. That's the kind of king I'd like. So they want to make Jesus king. And Jesus already is king. They're just too blind to realize it. But they want their kind of king, not the kind of king Jesus really is. And the irony of the story is, in their desire to make Jesus their kind of king, they turn their blind eye to the kingdom of Jesus, which he's invited them into. But as John unfolds this story, he gives the feeding of the 5,000, then has Jesus walk on water. Now, we've talked before how one of the constant themes in John is contrasting and, and, and putting Jesus and Moses out there together so that the Jews could see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of Moses. He's not just another Moses. He's greater than Moses. He's the fulfillment. Moses points to Jesus. So Jesus is going to give this discourse, it's called the bread of life discourse, where he says, you know, you got manna that you think Moses gave you. Moses didn't give you that manna, God gave it to you, but I'm the bread of life. People who ate that manna, they die. People who have me as their sustenance and nourishment, people who see me as the bread of life, they'll never die. 
That fits real well with feeding the 5,000. But John sticks in the middle of it between the sermon of Jesus being the bread of life and Jesus feeding the 5,000. John puts in the middle Jesus walking on water. Doesn't draw any symbolism from it at all. But we do. What Moses do? Divided the Red Sea. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He walks on it. He just walks right across to help his disciples. That's the greatness. And that tunes us into understanding the bread of life discourse. So we've got that. Don't miss the interplay there between Jesus, Moses, and the Exodus. Jesus is Messiah. He's son of God. He'll have life. Pharaoh's armies? No. We, you follow Jesus. You don't even, Peter learned this, sort of. You follow Jesus and keep your eye on him. You don't even need the sea to split. He'll take you right on top. All right. Miracle number six. Healing the blind man. This is found in John chapter nine. We're running a little slow on time, but we're doing okay. So maybe we've got a moment to look at it. Let's go to the Elmo. John chapter nine. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples said, hey, rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Inquiring minds need to know. And then can you tell us what the sin was? Um, Jesus said, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God, works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him. Look at this. Who sent me. Hold on to that word. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night's coming when no one's working. So look, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He went and washed and he could see. Now, is this uh, some new eye salve spit on mud? No, don't try it. It really is not going to work for you. Is this because the pool of Siloam were magic waters? If you had eye spit mud? No. The pool of Siloam's there. Jesus uses it. John explains to his Greek readers why. Siloam is not the Greek word that means the same as sent. Siloam is the Greek transliteration where they use Greek letters for the Hebrew word shaloah, which means sent. So John's Greek readers may not know that the pool of Siloam means sent. So he translates it because they need to understand Jesus is doing this miracle to underscore that his healing, his bringing sight to the blind is not simply the life and work of Jesus, it's the life and work of who sent Jesus. So the man goes and washes in the pool of the sent one. Because Jesus is doing the work of God the Father. Jesus, if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Jesus is Messiah. He's Son of God. He's do, he was sent by God, and the works that he do, da, did were works of sending not only Jesus, but those he touched. 
So this is a wonderful miracle choice for John to help us understand who Jesus was. The last one, the climax, the seventh, the perfect one, is raising Lazarus from the dead. This happens two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus has left Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him. Jesus went all the way down into the Rift Valley, went down near Jericho. But when he finds out that Lazarus, his friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, is sick unto death, Jesus waits for a couple of days, not because he's afraid to go back to where people were trying to kill him. He waits for a couple of days because he's got something else he needs to do before his own death happens. Jesus dies at the right time. And the time is not right until Jesus does this miracle. This miracle needs to be done before Jesus dies. Jesus goes back once Lazarus is dead. At this point, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Martha meets Jesus. Jesus says, just have faith, just have confidence. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Zoe. He who believes in me will live. Zoe. Even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha's response is one of... of, uh, Faith. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to into the world. But that doesn't help because now my brother's dead. It's one thing to believe in you and have eternal life. It's another thing when it's too late because you're already dead. She doesn't understand these things quite the way we see them with the the fullness of Scripture that we have. So in the midst of the crowd, in ways that echo the story that's going to unfold with Jesus Himself, Jesus goes to the man who's wrapped in burial clothes, who's in a sealed tomb, and tells them to roll away the stone. And you read the story, and you'll just see so many Echoes and parallels of what's going to be happening in just a matter of weeks with Jesus himself. They don't want to roll away the stone. It's going to stink. He's been dead four days, one more than Jesus. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And out he comes. Jesus tells his family, unwrap him. Take the grave clothes off of him. Not what he needs to be wearing anymore. Doesn't fit. That's for dead people. By the way, just an aside here. I heard a sermon when I was in high school that never left me. Where the preacher used that and he said, how many of us, by the way, is Jesus called back from the dead? And we're still walking around in our grave clothes like we're dead. Make sure you take yours off. We have life. We have joy. 
But this is the story showing Messiah, Son of God, who's come into the world so that people might have life in His name. And that's the final and seventh sign that John picked. So John has these signs and he put these seven signs together so that people would believe that Jesus is Messiah, the only Messiah, the only one we need, the only one we should expect, the only one that God will send. There is none other. Jesus is the unique Son of God, the singular Son of God. We're all children of God, but He is the Son of God in a unique way. And He is God. A snake has a baby, it's a what? Snake. A dog has a baby, it's a dog. Now God doesn't have a baby in that sense, but He's a Son of God in the sense that He is God. So that's what we have. Points for home. These are written. These seven. Now I gotta tell you, I've been alive 52 years. And I've spent a good chunk of them wanting some miracles. Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. I can remember when I was 11 years old sitting in church, hearing that scripture and thinking, well, I don't even need that. I'd be happy to move a pencil. That must take like maybe... One one thousandth of a mustard seed of faith. Surely I got that much and I stared at that pencil the whole service. (laughs) It never moved. I can remember walking down streets. It still happens today where I have people who can't walk, who are sitting there with cups. And I want so badly to be able to say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I hadn't done that, in part because I have some silver and gold, and I'll just give them that. (laughs) I know I can do that. But that's not what God, I want those miracles, and I really want them so that I might better believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And you know what? I've already got my seven miracles. That's seven. That's a total and full number. And it was good enough for the apostles to give their lives. It was good enough for something spectacularly, bizarrely, so weird you'd never think it could happen, happen. And that is that 11 fishermen, a tax collector, a couple of just good-for-nothings, in some backwater armpit of the Roman Empire, whose leader gets killed. They spread the faith that has gone around the globe. That's a miracle. Yeah, look, I'm not saying God can't work miracles today. He's the same God. I'm not saying you don't pray for your miracles. But don't do it in the idea of, gee, I need them to believe. That's not what this is about. You put your faith in Jesus and God can work miracles that are just totally, incredibly out of this world based. Or he can work through circumstances and facts and work miracles where you look back and say, I wonder if that's really God. I wonder if that would have happened if I hadn't prayed. 
Either way, you put your faith in God. That's it. You focus on Jesus. You don't focus on miracle number eight. Point for home two. So these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I've been taxing my brain this weekend for that C.S. Lewis quote that goes something like, within the will of God, there is nothing I fear. Outside the will of God, there is nothing I want. And I can't find it. We are all these C.S. Lewis experts. They're sitting there saying, sounds like him. But the guy wrote so much, none of us can put our finger on it. If you know where that is found in C.S. Lewis, let me know, please. But I can tell you this. With Jesus, I don't have anything to fear. The Jesus who's the Christ, the Son of God, who has life in his name to all who believe, all I need to do is focus on him, live for him, seek to serve him, and let the wind blow as it may. My Lord walks on water. Last, by believing, you may have life in his name. This is what I want to drive me. Let me explain what I mean by that. I want this to be the reason I do what I do. I want this to be the reason I talk the way I talk. I want this to be the reason I try to find patience when impatience is oozing out every pore. I want this to be the reason I treat people with kindness. When that old man within me is filled with with everything but kindness. I want this to be the reason I put my priorities where I put them. I want this to set up what's important to me in my life. I want this to establish my worldview. I want this to inform and drive everything that I do. I'm not there yet, but if I can borrow uh, McGrath's passage out of Philippians. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal for the upward calling of Christ. And that's where I ask you to join me. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray your blessings on all who hear this message. I pray that you will take these words and, and, and use them to help us not only glorify you, but live for you. We stand amazed in your presence. Don't let us lose that amazement. Make it grow within us and and overwhelm us and transform us. We live, Father, to serve you. Through our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.